0: The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science
1: Inside with Elna.
2: Welcome indeed to the Science Inside. My name is Elna Schütz and I am your favorite nerd who spends every Monday night one hour looking into science of news stories and just generally our lives. And this week, it's about that local movie that has caused quite a bit of stir. I'm sure you've heard all about it. It's called Incheba, or The Wound, for those of us that struggle a little bit with those clicks. It cannot!
1: It It's It cannot! <laughs>
2: If you haven't heard, the movie is centered around a gay love story on the mountain. Holani is a factory worker who goes home to the Eastern Cape to help oversee the initiation processes on the mountain. One of the young Xhosa initiates discovers his homosexuality and he is trying to keep it hidden very much much and this is where the whole story sort of comes from it's done very well for itself this movie 9 awards at 44 festivals across the globe and it's won numerous local award nominations, I'm sure you've heard all about it not only because of the content but because of the very strong reactions to this movie, the cast has gotten death threats, cinemas across the Eastern Cape and elsewhere were, were forced to cancel screenings of the film because of protests the movie's producers have filed a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, but but then, you know, the Congress of Traditional Leaders of South Africa was supporting the protests. There are people on either side of this. Most of the criticism, of course, is around the portrayal of initiation and the Xhosa culture in general. Others have said that the critics are actually just homophobic and it's not about culture. Whatever you might think of it, One thing is undeniable. The movie has started some strong conversations. Here on the show, we love jumping into those uh, conversations and saying... Hey, you know what? Let's look at the science. Let's look at the medicine. Let's look at what is happening behind all of these conversations. So that's exactly what we're going to do in our story later on in the show. Today we're looking at male medical circumcision. It's something that you've probably heard a lot about. Maybe you think you know whether you are male or female. I'm sure we can all learn something from our interview later in the show. Then we have unscience. And we have the ultimate cure for FOMO. Yes, science has found a way for you to be at class or a party and in your bed at the same time. How great does that sound? That's in Unscience Later. Then we feature a scientist. That one's going to get really interesting. And before all of that, we'll kick it off with the news just like every week. If you want to interact with us, maybe tell us, what you thought of the movie, whether you've seen the movie, but most of all, I would love to hear your views on the medical side of male circumcision. Do you think that it's a great idea? Would you encourage uh, your friends or your brother or your sister, you, you know, well, not your sister, of course, but people in your environment, would you encourage people to find out more about male circumcision? And even do it themselves What do you think? Let us know um, As we are the Science Inside on Facebook We have a WhatsApp line It's 84 And on Twitter as always At VauFM Hashtag Science Inside But before all of that We're going to get into the news
1: This week's Science Headlines
2: so, every single week, we kick off the show just by giving you some updates about what's been happening in, uh, in the world of, of science and research. And today, I'm joined, joined by our producer, Bridget Pere. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Elna. How are you? I'm great. And I have a very interesting story for you. Mm-hmm. So, the oldest complete skeleton in Britain has been revealed, at least what the skeleton look like looks like, or would have looked like possibly, has been revealed for the very first time by UCL and Natural History Museum researchers. It is about 10,000 years old, and there are some surprises here. Bridget, this person has been nicknamed the Cheddar Man. What would you expect this oldest British citizen that we've
3: found to look like? I'd assume he he looks yellow with hints of green. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like cheese. I mean,
2: uh, yeah, if he's called cheddar, he must be he must be yellow, right? Sure. <laughs> Not quite. Even if you weren't thinking along the lines of Bridget, it's still a little bit surprising for a lot of people because apparently the cheddar man had dark coloured curly hair and dark to black skin pigmentation blue eyes which is not a match that we might naturally think of as british and up till now many people have assumed that that the skeleton had much lighter skin especially in light of what you might think of as a typically british person traditionally but this shows that the idea of lighter skin as a northern european thing is much more recent than we might think And this was one of the most challenging human DNA projects to this date because no British individual this old has ever had their genome sequenced. So the the Natural History Museum really had quite something on their hands.
3: Wow. This is amazing, so what else do you know about this cheddar man? Well we don't know, we do not know if he liked cheese or not, but
2: we know that he is genetically similar to other Europeans of the time whose DNA have been analysed thus far. His ancestors were hunter-gatherers that most likely moved into Europe at the end of the last Ice Age and today it's suspected that around 10% of indigenous British ancestry can be linked back to that very population. Wow. This is very cool. Is this a new skeleton? Actually, it's not. You would think so, but the evidence is new, not Cheddar Man himself. He was found over 100 years ago in a cave at Cheddar Gorge in Somerset, which is of course where he gets his name from. So that's quite a long time that scientists have been trying to understand more about him and you know, other humans that lived at the time. And now, Thanks to this very cutting-edge technology of DNA and facial reconstruction, we see for the first time the face of this man that lived 300 generations ago. And if
3: you want to have a peek, just look at our social media. We have a picture there for you. Wow, this is really fascinating, Elna. So they got all of this information, all this DNA from a skeleton. Yep. And thankfully with DNA, you don't need, you know,
2: buckets and buckets of things. If you think of the movies and, you know, some spy steals, uh, you know, a lip print from somebody's glass, you really don't need that much uh, to get somebody's DNA. So, all they had to do was get a few milligrams of his bone powder, and they drilled a tiny two-millimeter wide hole into his ancient skull. And thankfully, the cool conditions of the cave that he was found in means his DNA was unusually well-preserved And they were able to find out enough to tell not just some of his genetic characteristics, but do a facial reconstruction. So I think the story is so amazing because just looking at that picture, it looks so different to what you and I not only expect, but maybe are used to. And for me, it really reminds me that the history of humans is so much more complex than black and white and what people you know might think, Northern European or African or American. Science is so much more complex. And in the end, we're all human, even if our nickname is Cheddar Man. What do you have for
3: us, Bridget? Well, in this week's news story, scientists have succeeded in growing the first human egg in a lab. Okay, so we obviously know that you can fertilize eggs, Mm -hmm. but growing them from scratch? Yep, so this is done through they harvest uh, some um, ovarian stem, uh, stem cells and then from there they can reproduce an, an egg and grow it in the lab and yeah, they've done it. Okay, so this is the first time it's been done on humans? Yes, this is the first time it's been done on humans but they've previously carried out this, um, this kind of procedure on mice before but never uh, with human eggs okay so growing them i can understand we've grown all kinds of different cells but will they work the way they should well um you know it's still unclear whether the eggs will be healthy enough and normal to carry through the whole procedure of fertilizing the eggs with uh, sperms but um yeah there are possibilities And, um, however, a stem cell biologist, Kyle Orwig, who was not involved in this study, uh, says this is a great breakthrough and it is beneficial for patients who might need this in future okay so is this just for women who are struggling with infertility or who is this for no it's not it's not for that only uh, it's uh, women who have been uh, who have undergone chemotherapy it's girls who have not reached puberty as yet so uh, they may harvest the um, ovarian tissue at um, a stage before they start uh, chemotherapy and then they may use the, the the tissue at a later stage when the child is uh, mature enough to be a woman and carry a child and they use the very same tissue to reproduce. That sounds amazing if that's possible but it also sounds a little bit risky. Yeah it is uh, quite risky because um, people are, are well when you do um, re-transplant the tissue back into the human body it poses dangers of reintroducing the, the cancerous cells as well. That makes sense because in the end, it is still you and your cells. Um, but are there any
2: other problems around this?
3: Well, there are some other scientists who are a bit concerned because usually, um, in the human body, it takes about five months to, um, you know, produce an, an egg and for it to grow naturally. Uh, but with science, these scientists, they've grown the eggs over 22 days only, so some scientists are concerned that this could result in abnormal cells and they could not carry out, um, you know, reproduce healthy children in future. Mm. I suppose
2: we can only really know once these studies progress to another level. What is the future like with this?
3: Uh, well they are uh, they are working on improving the process with hopes of um you know fertilizing the eggs uh, at a later stage with with sperm but um they have to obviously get some um, approval from um, the people that they work with so um, they're not ready yet to reproduce a pregnancy but this is really uh, groundbreaking work okay so for now they're just studying it but who knows in future people
2: who had no chance of having a baby could and their egg was actually grown in a lab true that sounds crazy. I'm always so surprised by our news stories of just how every single day we are getting further with science. We are learning new things, and it's it's really incredible because it changes people's lives. This isn't just some study. This might be the answer to some person who now thinks they'll never get children. How exciting is that? That was our news. But up next, to snap or not to snap, we get into the medical side of male circumcision.
0: This is The Science Inside
1: with Elna.
2: It is indeed. My name is Elna Schütz and welcome to the show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook as The Science Inside. Tweet us at Valve M using the hashtag, hashtag Remember, we are asking you today about your opinions about medical male circumcision. What do you think about it? And if you have any interesting questions, now is the moment. And we are having these conversations because of all the talk that has started around the movie... In and it really is sparking a lot of questions around culture But I want to bring it more to the medical side So that whatever your personal choice is You know what science is saying It's always important to just keep that in the conversation On the line with us now is General Practitioner Dr. Tabani Kuanyana Thank you so much for joining us
1: Anna and and your listeners good evening Interesting time we meet
2: It's so exciting to have you with us and to talk about this topic and to be able to talk about it so openly because it can really affect a lot of people's lives. Let's get into the conversation just by understanding a little bit, what do we know? What numbers or statistics are out there about men who get circumcised in South Africa? Whatever um, form that might take, both culturally or uh, medically.
1: Okay, I think where we can start uh, is actually just to try try and highlight uh, that uh, this is a science uh, basically targeted for uh, kind of a resource-limited settings. that is uh, to say maybe the third world, where perhaps uh, there's a, a limited access to healthcare or where maybe there might be limited access to condom use so the World Health Organization then identified, uh, particularly the Eastern and Southern African countries, where the HIV is rife, uh, because uh, they realised that those countries, because they are third world, they didn't really have access to many choices of preventing HIV. So there is, there is many other. Uh, uh forms of preventing HIV that are well established like condoms but if you look if you take this to our settings we are facing a situation where even access to condoms might be challenged so that's why this medical male scams is very important in our setting and uh, when it started, or when, when it was found out that actually uh, circumcision can reduce HIV to, uh, by about 60%, then WHO, which is the World Health Organization, then it got involved into the research and tried to roll out this, with a target of at least uh, targeting 80% in the countries that are either in the East or Southern Africa. Uh, then it picked up... Uh, Actually, okay, I think it started uh, about it, it got to about forty percent, which is maybe about eleven million uh, people. And uh, but with time, with the antiretroviral therapy also becoming effective, and with in- increased access to antiretroviral therapy, then it sort of took a, a dip towards the end of uh, 2015, uh, coming towards now. So there's been uh, it's not been picking up as, uh, as it was initially expected but uh, we understand that is perhaps because of many other things that are happening because so, uh, fighting hiv uh, is a lot of effort it takes uh, many other measures which medical male circumcision is just one part of yeah
2: hmm. and i hear that what you're talking about is this very concerted effort by the world health organization to roll this yeah. out but how wide do you think is the awareness of ordinary South Africans, wherever they might live, about male circumcision and its benefits and why they would want to do this?
1: Okay, so what is a, what is a, actually just new is the concept that is now what is called your voluntary may, medical male circumcision. But if you look at, at the countries that we're talking about, circumcision per se... I would say it's always been there, but maybe for different reasons, for cultural and for uh, religious reasons, really. Uh, but it is only in the recent years that it's actually been incorporated into the HIV, because, like I was saying, that uh, in the year 2000, that's when the, the World Health Organization actually discovered that in men that were circumcised, there, there was kind of a reduction in the HIV transmission. So the circumcision as a, as a practice, I would say it's, a, it's wide. It's a, every, in, in most of societies it is there. In other societies it has fallen off and is, is needing to be revived uh, if, it, if we are to target the HIV uh, uh, concept. Uh, but it has been there. And again, my uh, challenge will just be to say For instance, in in a a, a province like Eastern Cape, where it is done almost with all uh, teenagers uh, each year, whether the target is actually to do it for the HIV purposes or is it just to continue the culture. So that's where the integration needs to happen, uh, to to maybe be on the same page, because it is performed, but maybe not in a context of the HIV. Hmm. So. Yeah.
2: I have heard so many misconceptions around that link between circumcision and HIV. Some people seem to think that uh, once you're circumcised you're basically protected for life um, and and um, obvi- obviously the science doesn't fully support that. Can you tell us a bit more about what the science really does say about this link and also getting into the medical nitty-gritty of why? Does circumcision um, have such a big effect on your risk of HIV?
1: Okay, so I think uh, uh, again we can put it, we can flip the coin because uh, what we say is that uh, it reduces HIV transmission by sixty percent. Uh, so if you were to flip the coin, which means you actually still have forty percent of getting the HIV infection. So uh, and then somebody will uh, will be very skeptical about medical circumcision being the solution if you're actually looking at that, is almost close to 50-50 so what the circumcision really does is that if you're thinking of the penis as a component it's got uh, the foreskin which underneath it harbors these cells which are called macrophages which tend to have an affinity uh, towards the HIV antigens which is the, the viral material that the HIV brings Uh, to try and attach uh, to the cells. So those uh, macrophages are in the softer part of the internal uh, part of the foreskin. So, but if you think of a penis as it is, you still have the glands, which is the head of the penis, which is also quite soft, and you still have the opening, which is the urethra, uh, where it can also provide access. If you think then what circumcision can do really all it does is going to remove uh, the, the foreskin, uh, which is the covering, and help with, so all it does really is that uh, once you remove the, heart, the the soft, the skin, the softer part of the penis gets hardened, which means the, the medical term is that it gets keratinized. So it gets hardened in that then is impenetrable. Uh, it becomes very hard for any viruses to penetrate that. But then there still are components of the penis. There's nothing really that has been identified that can prevent a fluid or any HIV infection getting into the urethra or attaching into other places. And also, for instance, once you've got maybe, say, another sexually transmitted infection like cuts or sores and ulcers, it will also still just bring in the, the 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 access by the HIV. So that's why then if you think of uh, that 60% we're talking about, is really just parts of the penis that you can do something about. But uh, really the number one prevention is at this stage as we talk about it is really your uh, condoms, which forms a barrier, complete barrier, covering the penis from the head to the shaft all the way, which is then more of a barrier that uh, prevents totally. Uh, There is problems also with the condom, it's not 100%, but it's closest. So if you think of that, then uh, if, if the people understand why it comes in health to protect, they will also know actually why then it cannot be used alone as a preventative mechanism
2: hmm. that's fascinating yeah. because it really is you um you are making the the chance or the area that can uh, that can receive the virus smaller, and with it your chances, yeah. but that doesn't mean you're bringing it down to zero. and And I thought you yes. explained that explained sure. that really well. But surely this is not the only medical benefit. Are there other things yes, you should uh, know?
1: Okay, so again, that's why I was saying that this is very important in a in a resource limited setting, that well, so to speak. Because then, where in circumstances where there's poor hygiene, uh, and that there's also maybe a risk of other co-infections, say either your syphilis or your other viruses like human papilloma viruses, then the penis tends to harbour those, uh, either your some of the germs if there's poor hygiene, or if somebody has got other infection, it tends to harbour those. Which means then, if you think about the human viruses, those are the viruses that can cause cancer. So it can cause a penile cancer, and also it can be transmitted to a female and cause a cervical cancer. And uh, one other component that is important also here is that uh, the medical circumcision, medical male circumcision actually, uh, the unfortunate part is that it only protects the male. So actually, it actually prevents a female-to-male transmission not the other way around so that's another important factor that people need to know that is so in this case if a, a female has infections or maybe is hiv positive they may not transfer the virus to the male if they are medically circumcised but the other way around if a male is hiv positive they can actually still easily uh, uh, transfer or transmit the virus to the female so that's a very important information because people shouldn't think that maybe it's just a two-way stream it's actually kind of a one-way stream which actually means for most females uh, you cannot rely on the fact that your your partner is circumcised Uh, actually you have to do more than that
2: Mm. And what about the timing? Because if we look at different cultures, such as the Jewish culture that traditionally circumcises babies and then many African cultures that traditionally circumcise teenagers and perhaps some Western, uh, Western countries where adults might get circumcised, does it matter when this happens?
1: Yes, uh, it does matter. Uh, the, the early infant uh, circumcision... Is, is common, uh, especially you talk about the Jewish uh, culture. It is common. It raises a lot of ethical questions, which we will not get into now, because uh, the, the drive currently is about the voluntary medical male circumcision, which means it must be an adult over 18 who gives consent that they want to do it. So, which means in the other, way it's early infants and younger people, there's a lot of ethical issues. But to answer your question, the timing is important in that uh, if you are obviously circumcised early in your life, this keratinization of the tissue that happens, which means that hardening of your your glands of the penis and the skin around there will have been there for longer, which means your skin, your your softer parts of the penis will have been exposed for longer, which make them harder and harder and harder over time, which then in adults, that might already present with a missed opportunity. When you do it, say you are already older. Maybe you've already been exposed, or that uh, the hardening of the penis maybe now is not going to be as quick for you not to contract any HIV. Because I mean, the six weeks you wait for after after the the, the, the circumcision uh, is just for healing. But the hardening of the penis takes time, so. The timing is important, uh, which is why then, I guess, uh, in our in our setting, it becomes an emergency to say we have to try and reach out to as many people as possible, but then uh, it is highly recommended that they don't use just medical circumcision as the only tool. It's very imperative and, and actually very important that they still use the condoms with it.
2: Mm. And. We know that no medical procedure Comes without risks Uh, Something can always go wrong Are there risks that men should be aware of? Okay, so
1: uh, I will say There are big risks Uh, Some people may um, uh, Call them maybe softer risks Because if you Okay, so with the early infant uh, circumcision uh, Changes are the penis has not even developed yet, or the, the foreskin has not developed yet. So, you are removing the healthy foreskin, and the person going older may actually think that they now do not have a foreskin. Actually, uh, another foreskin as they grow up can actually grow, because it had not fully developed. But that's one part. Then the other part with adults, which can also happen even with the younger people, This is a this is a a foreskin is what carries all the nerve endings that are important in a sexual intercourse. So that's why I was saying that this is perhaps what is seen as a softer tissue, but for most other men, if it goes wrong, uh, it can render them uh, to have sexual problems. uh, Particularly because the foreskin carries millions and millions of nerve endings, which means. The penis can become insensitive, and also with other people, depending on what kind of clothing you wear, there's a lot of rubbing uh, in the, in, into the into the penis, which can cause a lot of discomfort, maybe for men for a long a long time. And the penis tends to be quite sensitive, which means uh, it, it it might just affect you uh, in terms of say maybe your family, you know, your sexual life. But again, I guess the target current is that the HIV is perhaps bigger. But for some people, maybe that is more important that actually their sexual health is also preserved. So the main side effect is really that you're killing the nerves or taking the nerve endings away. You're lucky there's some left, but you actually may not perhaps enjoy to the same level the sex that you would with with the foreskin.
2: Hmm. Now that we've yeah. spoken through some of the the benefits, the medical benefits, and also the risks, what are your overall views about whether this is something that most men should consider?
1: Well, uh, I, I I really think that uh, uh, if if there's a, there will be maybe a certain kind of man, if if uh, your lifestyle, uh, you know. Uh, How you you carry your lifestyle and you're not really worried about uh, getting into uh, Many sexual contacts with the people that maybe you don't know their HIV status I I don't unless if really your your foreskin is a problem and that you've got some because there can be some medical Conditions that uh, affect the foreskin. I I wouldn't say something that needs to be removed routinely because I mean, it, it has its purpose, it has uh, it has its functions uh, but obviously for men or maybe where people are not sure whether they will be able to, uh, I don't know how to put it correctly without uh, sensationalizing it but uh, I think it comes down to really lifestyle and how you carry yourself because if you, you think that maybe you're going to have many sexual contacts and maybe the people that you either know or not know about the HIV status, I'll say then it is, it is something that you can, you can go for. Or maybe if you think you're not going to, uh, maybe your hygiene is compromised for whatever reason, or that you think you're you are, you are living a, a risky lifestyle that expose you to these infections. But other than that, it's really a purely healthy uh, part of, of, of the penis, uh, healthy tissue, that if well maintained, well cleaned, poses no problems. And if uh, it's got no infections, poses no problems, except if maybe uh, in, a, in a few men where you get what is called uh, phimosis, where maybe the, the foreskin gets tighter and it, the man is unable to open it uh, during the sexual intercourse. In that case, then it might need to be removed. But uh, again, I'm saying this uh, being careful because we are in a country. Where there's a high prevalence of HIV, so you don't want to also send a wrong message that people shouldn't go for circumcision because we are kind of in an emergency situation.
2: Mm, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. We've been talking to yeah. do, to Dr. Tabani in Kanyana a very well-rounded conversation i think about medical male circumcision not just looking at one side just the benefits or just the risks but really uh, really very very well-rounded and very wholesome i think thank you so much for talking to us
1: thank you very much you're welcome
2: We are going to continue the show in just a second. If you missed this conversation, you just tuned in and thought, what, we're talking about male circumcision? I want to know more. Make sure that you catch our podcast. It's on journalism.coza forward slash science. But after the break, we continue with Unscience.
1: You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major
3: news events.
2: Yes, welcome to the show. We transition now into the five minutes, the little gap in between all the science where it gets a little bit silly. It's called unscience. And we look at some strange, some wonderful, some sometimes incredibly weird research. I am joined as always by um, our producer, Bridget LePere, just to... Give us a second opinion on this, but let's get into unscience.
1: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
2: So I am sure you have had it. I have had it. We have probably all had that feeling on a Friday night. You're sitting at home and you're thinking, oh man... I wish I could be at that party. It's called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And it might be a party, but it also might just be a really important class or meeting that you missed and you really cannot catch up on it. It would be so great to be there without actually being there. And thanks to the science of telepresence, this is already
3: possible, Bridget. Wow. He... It's like being a mini god, <laughs> <laughs> omnipresence. <laughs> well, not quite. You do still have to be awake, just
2: somewhere else. And telepresence is a technology, any kind of technology, that makes you feel and seem present while actually being somewhere else. So the term was coined in 1980 by US cognitive scientist Marvin Minsky after he read about the idea in some science fiction. Since then, a variety of research has gone into making you feel like you are there even when you're not. So the simplest version of this tech is like video calling, but with some mobility added. So maybe there's a device or a robot that has a screen attached with your face is on. So you can Skype in and maybe remotely control the robot to drive around the office, even when you're sick at home or across the country. So you'd still be able to see and contribute to all the meetings, or chats around the coffee pot, even though obviously you wouldn't be drinking any coffee. So I can imagine quite a few students who would love a telepresence robot to attend early classes for them while they're still sitting in bed all snugly. but I don't think the lecturers would quite appreciate
3: it. I don't
2: think so. <laughs> so... The thing is, this kind of tech has been used for some quite cool things. So, there have been newborn babies that have met their dads who are away in the army and kids who are in hospital who are able to attend school remotely that way. But, if that's not enough for you, there's a new product called the Chameleon Mask and it's taking this to a whole new level. They decided that telepresence still needs a more personal touch. So Deputy Director Sony uh, of the Sony Computer Science Laboratory Jun is calling it the human uber. Like before, you are present remotely through a video link of your face. Except that this time you are attached to an actual person. These so-called uh, called surrogates are walking around with yes, a screen on their face with your face on it. They have a headset that shows them not only what is in front of them, but also signals that you give them. So maybe you uh, lift your hand and you show them to open the
3: door or raise their hand in class and they'll do it. Wow, this is some form of laziness. It just takes laziness to another level. Yeah,
2: except for the surrogate who's walking around being you. Although, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe the surrogate wouldn't appreciate everything. If you want him to hug your grandma or arm wrestle your colleague, maybe they wouldn't play along. But... According to initial tests, people reacted well to this form of telepresence, and they even started treating the surrogate as if they were the person on the screen. So I'm not so convinced by that, but beyond this kind of social interaction, telepresence, believe it or not, has been quite useful when, for instance, an expert is elsewhere, or you know, not in space. Because NASA has a robot called the Robonaut that performs repairs and the like on the International Space Station. It also has a very hilarious Twitter account if you want to go look at that. But here's something else. Maybe, maybe you'd like this, Bridget. Doctors have used robots to perform surgeries remotely. Like, for instance, there was a so-called Operation Lindbergh in 2001 where a surgeon operated and removed a French lady's gallbladder, even though he himself was in New York at the time.
3: I don't think this would suit me very well. What if the battery dies? (laughs) What if there's a power surge? What happens then? Exactly. It is pretty scary. Um, These cases are usually done through a
2: virtual reality set on the one side. So you can imagine the surgeon or or the, uh, the engineer... Having his hands in sort of gloves with lots of sensors on them And when he moves, so does the robot on the other side And of course, usually there's a human on that side to just check that everything's okay Not only are these robots quite expensive You can't just buy one at home Because it costs about a million dollars usually You also, as you said, Bridget, have to be very, very sure That your internet or other kind of connection is going to be very stable So they do make quite sure but i don't know about you maybe you want to skip class or you just dream of being able to operate on someone on the other side of the world maybe that's your dream but thanks to research into telepresence you are now able to unusual and likely and science
3: so bridget you're not keen for telepresence robots operating on you i'm not the operating part but maybe if it were to kiss my baby's goodnight on my behalf, maybe I might just consider it. Okay. Social robot is still okay the, for yeah. you. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind if it's an expert operating
2: on me and he's just somewhere else. I'm okay. I'm okay with the robot doctor, I e- think. Expert
3: robot doctor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was unscience. But next up, behind great science are some amazing people and we want to know how they tick.
1: Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna.
2: Here on the show, we love talking science, but behind science are humans scientists who have their own story and their own passion about why they have chosen to spend their lives researching what they are researching so it's a new thing that we're trying on the show to really talk to the people behind the science and today with us is charles mapanga he is a 31 year old biophotonics researcher at the council for scientific and industrial research the csri he works in the national laser center unit welcome charles Hi, Elna. How are you doing? I'm great.
0: And you? No, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And a very good evening to everyone in the studio and to your listeners.
2: We are so excited to have you with us. Let me just tell tell our listeners a little bit about you. You have been praised for your research into the use of the femtosecond laser technology as an alternative technique of administering medical drugs into HIV-1-infected cells. This laser technology is also called point-of-care, or POC, and it uses light from lasers to manipulate cells And tissues and it's typically used for the detection and treatment of cancer but this time it was used to look more closely as I was saying at HIV infected cells and investigating whether they can be treated by the means of this point of care technology. And Charles and his team at the CSRI conducted research exploring the possibility of this to help alleviate the medical and economic burden of HIV in in society. So it's something very exciting and something that our country needs. We were talking earlier on the show about the link between HIV and circumcision and it just shows you again how we need all of our brightest brains on this. But... Charles, before we get into your exact work, what led you into science?
0: <clears throat> you know, Elmer, if I had to tell you the truth, like uh, normally they ask me this question, and I always talk about, you know, like growing up in the village. It's the thing that, for me, I think I was just that with the love and the passion for math, for physics, and for biology. It's not like there was something outstanding that maybe I saw from someone or I saw on TV. I think just for the fact that I had so much love for medicine and biology, I think it's something that kept me going. And I think you know, like growing up in the village, I mean, people always say that those are the most difficult subjects ever, and people can actually even discourage you from following those uh, kind of subjects. But then, I mean, for me, it was the case that I mean, since most people are believing that this thing is impossible. I mean I can do it. I mean if I love something I don't need somebody to actually concern that okay this is this is for you, that you can follow. So I just went with my heart and I just pursued it and as you know they say the rest is history.
2: Hmm. And you didn't just finish school you actually completed matric at the age of 16 which is
0: (laughs) quite quite
2: incredible i've got to tell you for anyone in any in any situation especially growing up in in not the easiest background tell us a little bit about what you attribute the success to can i tell
0: you the reason why i actually finished early Um, I grew up with a lot of cousins. I mean, I had so many many cousins and they were living in the same house. So they happened to go to school first before me. So it was thing that you always want to come back home and try to be the teacher to the other ones that are not going to school. So they gave themselves time to actually teach me how to read and write before I could actually even start school. And I still remember very well that in the village, you know, back in the day, uh, during, like, the last day of school, you'd be allowed to bring in, like, your your siblings, your younger siblings, just to introduce them to the school. So I used to go to school with my cousins quite a lot uh, before I could actually even start school. So When I started school in 1992, I was actually only five years old, and then I turned six during the year. So by by that time, I actually already knew how to read and to write like your basic things, like your mother, father, grandfather. But the other thing that happened, I think that first me also to actually finish my kids uh, faster, is that I did um, a grade uh, seven and eight in one year. So I went to high school in July. And then I was never an a student. I think I was just a hard worker.
2: <laughs> well, it certainly is inspiring for those of us who, you know, just scrape through metric perhaps. Mm-hmm. But getting a little bit more into your actual research, what's, what sparked your discovery into just using laser technology specifically for HIV treatment? I think the if
0: there's one thing that I can tell you, Elma, is, Elma, is that, um, you know, HIV infection, it's something that I always say to people that over the years, you know, as South Africans, it has become something that has affected us directly as South Africans. You know, I mean, we've lost our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, and, you know, our fathers, and given a chance or an opportunity to research on certain epidemics, I mean, the possibility of contributing to making a difference, I mean, the kind of research that we do at the CSRT. It has to be research that, I mean, is going to actually make a difference in the lives of South Africans, and then getting into this research and then feeling that I'm given an opportunity to change somebody's life with my research, I felt like I was honoured with that opportunity. I mean, my research that I did, it focused primarily on the possibility of using laser technology uh, as an alternative drug delivery method, you know? So, but then the approach was to actually then be in this position of being able to reduce the severity of side effects of the oral intake of antiretroviral drugs. But then you must understand that my research was still at a in vitro level. So, i mean, research positions, but in vitro way, by just doing your research in a petri dish, and then you can have in vivo by then you're starting to do your research in, like, model organisms. Like animals, but then at the early stages of an in vitro level in my research, then I discovered that I could actually use laser technology as an alternative method to successfully introduce an HIV um, drug into HIV infected cells and still be in the position of reducing the level of infection without actually even killing the cells or stressing them out.
2: That's incredible. Can you tell it's us? Amazing, hey? Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Uh, oh, you see how the process go about is that in my case,
0: I'm just going to break it down for you. Okay, so in my case, I had I, I normally call them groups, but then in, in research, they normally just call them control groups. So I had HIV uninfected cells, and then I also had a group of HIV infected cells. The reason why I decided to have two groups is because uh, the HIV-infected cells, I was infecting them in-house. So if I'm infecting the cells in-house, I need to have a control group whereby I'm going to check if my infection was successful because I don't receive the cells infected already. I infect them in-house. So I also had two groups also because you know the cells, the HIV-infected cells, they have the level of taking up the drugs passively without you having to of the laser technology. So I decided to have two groups where I've got, like, HIV-infected cells, which were not treated with the laser, and then I also had HIV-infected cells, which were treated with the laser. By so doing, I wanted to check which level of infection has been reduced faster and successfully compared to the two groups. So in my case, I discovered that the laser-treated cells were able to actually pick up the drugs and then the level of infection was reduced faster and at a greater uh, intensity compared to uh, the cells that are just infected and then being introduced with the ARV without enhancing the laser. Mm.
2: It's very exciting, the findings you've made so far, but what Thank is you. the future of this technology? What could this mean for, uh, you know, the next 10 years, even the generations after us?
0: I mean, the technology is applied, I mean, in different forms. I mean, for the fact that you can individually, I, I heard you mention in cancer earlier on, for the fact that you can actually individually treat cells, that means that you have that possibility of in the future having to treat cells individually. Can imagine in a case whereby you have uh, a tumorous cell there or a group of cells that are just, un- that are just dividing uncontrollably and when you have uh, the privilege of actually using laser technology. I mean, there is just so much that you can do by individually treating themselves. There is just one typical example that I can give you in the whole basket of a lot of examples. But mean, I think in the future there is a lot of applications uh, for this. I mean, I mean, in my department, one of the other things that we're looking into, which is one of our current mandates, is the use of laser technology in designing point-of-care diagnostic devices.
2: Hmm. That's, uh, th- that is incredible All the different possibilities yeah. But just lastly Charles What would you love for younger people For students, for people who maybe Don't really know that much about science Or don't feel um, like science is for them What do you want them to know About what you've done And, and also just about science in general
0: you know, one thing that I can tell the young people is that it's normally something that I repeat all the time and normally I focus it on the people that are from disadvantaged areas because those are the people that I feel like I can relate to. There is so much that you can do in the field of science, you know? And the first thing that I always tell them is that you need to pass in a very well. Possibly like give yourself time to study. Parsimetrip very well. And then there's all these people that are willing to help you out. I mean, if, you, if you're doing very well, even companies like Council for Scientific and Industrial Research where I'm working, if you possibly make very well, they even have an inventory that they can give you. After passing your undergrad, they can still give you an internship position. You know, I mean, it's thing that if you put so much work into one thing that you believe in, I always believe this in my own ideology. I always believe that if you put, put in so much work into something, there will always be people that are willing to help you out and take you a step further.
2: Charles, thank you so much for joining us. That was Charles Mapanga, really trying to inspire us not just about science, but about the people behind it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Elma. Have a nice evening.
2: You too. We are still on the Science Inside.
0: This is the Science Inside with Elna.
2: That's the show for today and we've had a little bit of everything. We've had unscience about, you know... FOMO and um, and being in a place you're not because of robots but then we also heard about males, male medical circumcision and both the risks and the benefits which was a very interesting conversation and now lastly looking at the scientists behind the science Mr. Charles Mampanga and Today was a really good one. I think if you want to catch the podcast, it's on journalism.coza forward slash science. Big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show, including Mr. Charles Mapanga and Dr. Tabani Nkwanyana. Our team behind the scenes is, of course, production by Bridget LePere and tech by Kutlana Sarame. And in case you didn't know, the Science Inside is, in fact, recruiting. So your name could be on this list. Your voice could be on the radio. Find us on Facebook as The Science Inside, or Twitter as VowFM, and just, just send in your contact details, send in your application, and who knows, Science Radio could be your next thing. The Science Inside is produced by the Fitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Alna Schütz, and I will be back with you next week.
0: The science inside Monday from six to seven
1: p.m. on Power 88.1.
2: Listen to the
3: Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za.